When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. is meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to Psychologically Minded. My name is Grace Fowler, and today we are revisiting the topic of parasocial relationships. Now, there are several reasons why I want to revisit this topic. Um, the first time I talked about parasocial relationships way back in episode 12, which I encourage you to check out before listening to this one if you haven't heard it yet. In that episode, I had a lot of articles that I wanted to talk about, but I tried to focus more on kind of the origin of the theory of parasocial relationships and maybe how they've changed, the idea of them has changed as technology has uh, improved. But there were several areas of interest or articles that were related to parasocial relationships that I didn't get to touch on that I wanted to talk about now. Uh, And the second reason is that this is kind of going to be a prequel to next week's episode, which I will talk about more at the end of this episode. But I wanted to get some of this down just because it got missed (laughs) the, the, the first time that I did this topic. And there's some interesting articles that I was reading that I wanted to share with you guys. Um, And I do think that parasocial relationships are something that we should all be keeping in the forefront of our mind as I move into the topic that I'm going to be covering next week. So this episode, I'm focusing on a couple of different things. The first thing that I'm going to talk about in the context of parasocial relationships is uh, a syndrome which has the worst names... (laughs) ever associated with it. You may know it as erotomania. It's also called D. Clarembault syndrome or old maid's insanity, which are probably old maid's insanity is probably the worst name for anything I've ever come across in the field. So I will not be calling it that for the duration of this episode. I'm going to be talking mostly about erotomania um, and I, in the context of, of parasocial relationships. So first, what is erotomania or D D Clarembault syndrome? This is a essentially a subset of something called delusional disorder, which is a diagnosis in the DSM-5, uh, which is uh, the clinical presentation is essentially someone who is experiencing the psychotic symptoms of delusions, but not any other types of psychotic sim- symptoms such as hallucinations. So it's just the presence of delusions and they're very fixed and the person experiences some sort of impairment due to their fixed delusions. And the the overall umbrella of delusional disorder has different subtypes about what is the delusions focused on. So for example, persecutory would be uh, the delusion is mostly based around an idea or a belief that people are out to get the person holding the delusion. And so erotomania or erotomanic uh, delusions are one of those subtypes, and these focus on d- 
delusions that a person of typically a higher social status is in love with the person with the delusion. So erotomania or erotomanic delusions are solely focused on the individual who has the delusion uh, having a belief or being convinced that another person is in love with them even if there's a lack of evidence or lack of relationship between uh, that the person with the delusion and the the kind of focus of the delusion. So you can see how this would be impacted by parasocial relationships if it does not even require interaction from the focus of the delusion. And a key feature of this type of delusion, specifically uh, out of the work done by D. Clarence Ball, who the syndrome is named after, it really does focus on the fixation of the delusion being of a higher status, so be, maybe being more wealthy, more famous, having more education, or having a job that indicates higher status, like judge or doctor. And you can see how those, again, all come together, right? Like a doctor is probably going to have more money and maybe more widely known than someone who's not a doctor, but the focus is on somebody who is kind of outside of the social status. Now, interestingly enough, a lot of the literature that I was reading from, especially that was more recent from like the from 2020 and 2021, comes out of India. And at first I was like, am I in the wrong part of Google Scholar <laughs> that I'm getting all these articles from India? But it, it makes sense in that India has sort of this invisible caste system. Uh, like they're, they used to have a more formal caste system where it was difficult for people to move. Well, it was impossible. You were not supposed to move out of your social caste or your social standing. And although the formal kind of like government backed setup for that is no longer present in the culture, this like invisible system still exists and culture or class and status is very well known. And I've had some conversations with colleagues who are either from India or have family members, uh, loved ones who are from India. And uh, they've told me a lot about this kind of this very rigid social and economic hierarchy within the culture. And that even things like the color of your skin or knowing like which uh, university you went to in America can give an idea of what the person's social status would be in India. So it was interesting to me that a lot of this literature is coming from a culture where there is a, a, an awareness of difference in social status in a way that is maybe not as explicit in other types of cultures, which may make erotomania harder to not necessarily diagnose, but, uh, but conceptualize if this idea of like rigid social status isn't present. Because I can say in my experiences growing up in America, there is a cultural belief that you can climb the ladder, the social ladder, and make your way into a new social status. So being in love with someone of a different social status doesn't necessarily mean that they're inaccessible. All that to say, this is still a mental health condition, albeit a rare one. Uh, and it doesn't, just because the research comes from India doesn't mean that only people in India can be diagnosed with erotomania or this subtype of delusion. Uh, people anywhere can have it. It's just probably more noticeable in countries or cultures where the social status uh, of the other person would be a focus or be in the air more. So erotomania can occur even outside of the presence of delusional disorder. It can be associated with other psychiatric illnesses such as uh, bipolar disorder or schizophrenia. Any 
essentially any disorder where psychotic symptoms can be present and erotomania would just manifest as part of those psychotic symptoms within the other disorder or it can be on its own diagnosed uh, as a primary mental disorder. Some theories as to why erotomania may uh, develop in a person uh, is related to this idea that it may be a coping mechanism to deal with severe loneliness after a major loss. So in some of the research there has been found that people develop erotomania pretty quickly uh, and then deal with it chronically for for a while uh, after a triggering event like losing someone and having a sense of being isolated or being very, very lonely. And it may be essentially the delusion may develop out of a way for the brain to cope with feeling so alone and kind of creating a, a belief for the person that they're not alone, that they have someone who's uh, in love with them that's very interested in them and wouldn't make them feel as lonely. Um, and when erotomania is paired with other things like bipolar disorder or schizophrenia, it tends to not be so sudden, so it may not necessarily have the trigger. So primary erotomania, which is when it's just occurring on its own, can be very sudden, and secondary, where it's occurring within another mental health disorder, can come on kind of more slowly. The tricky part about erotomania is that it, it is essentially a, typically occurring in people who are also experiencing some sort of social isolation, whether due to the loss they've experienced or due to impairment brought on by another mental health disorder, which can disrupt interpersonal relationships. So the person may be feeling very lonely or maybe socially isolated, but a fixed point of the delusion is that the other person, so the person they believe is in love with them, made the first move. And that is an interesting feature that comes up across the literature is that the person who holds the delusion uh, doesn't see themselves as making the first move to initiate a relationship with the person they believe is in love with them. So let's say, for example, uh, uh, someone has the delusion that Pete Davidson is in love with them. Right? Let's just use a let's just use a celebrity. They have a, the this person has the delusion that Pete Davidson is in love with them. They've never met Pete Davidson. They've never interacted with him online. Uh, but part of the delusion would be that he's reached out to them and sent them some sort of message. And this, I think, becomes exacerbated by social media and technology uh, because these sort of secret messages being sent to the person can come through, like, uh, the tweets that the person sends out or maybe interviews with them where they wink or make some sort of body language that then gets wrapped up into the delusion. And if you think about this disorder the research of it beginning in like, I don't know when day Clarenbault was doing his primary research, but it was not in the modern day. It was like in the, the, I believe it was in the 1960s. And if you remember from the parasocial relationships episode, the 1960s was when TV started to change and we had the, we began to have the emergence of different types of media like soap operas and more regular television shows rather than just like your three late night shows on your three channels <laughs> or your, I guess your one late night show and then like your news channels. Right. So it, the research on this was happening in a time when there was starting to become uh, access to celebrities or movie stars or film stars in a way that people hadn't had in the past. And as we move into where we are today with the prevalence of social media, that might change that might change the way in which the delusion is like supported in which uh the way in which somebody could gather evidence for their delusion and i do want to just take a moment and, and 
kind of address that I have I do I'm using the term delusion and it, I probably sound like I've said it a hundred times by the time we've hit barely even 15 minutes into the episode um, but that is a clinical term it is the word that we use to communicate across disciplines and through treatment teams that a person is experiencing symptoms related to a fixed belief that causes impairment to them and when I say someone has a delusion I, I say that rather than saying someone is delusional Um, because it doesn't mean that the entire person (laughs) or personality is broken, right, or wrong, Um, but that a person who's experiencing a delusion or having a delusion does not have control over the beliefs that are manifesting in their mind and can suffer a great deal from these beliefs kind of, or these delusions kind of taking hold in their life. And so I just want to be clear and as part of the, you know, nature of the show of spreading more awareness of psychology and mental health in general that some of the terms that we use clinically may not sound just the best right they they have connotations within our culture or within our language um that are not present when we're using them clinically but can come across when we're using them in day-to-day life and so i just want to acknowledge that when i say delusion in the context of this episode, I am talking about this kind of clinical term to describe a selection of symptoms, specifically cognitive symptoms, that can impact somebody's life and contribute to this disorder. So that's my PSA for the day, and maybe that could help in the future when you make are, are making decisions about what type of language to use instead of calling someone delusional, uh, re- revisiting the use of that word more colloquially. So anyway, back to the research. Uh, One of the articles that I was reading also talked about a, well, they were summarizing an article that had done brain scans of people with erotomania or having erotomanic delusions, and they found that there were actual differences in the structure of the brain in these people when compared to Uh, a sample of people who didn't have this disorder, and they found that people with erotomania had larger temporal lobes, and this is a part of the brain that, well, not larger, basically the the temporal lobes were different sizes. They, They didn't match up on both sides of the brain. So the temporal lobe is kind of like in the middle bottom of the brain. It sits right over the brainstem, and it's, it, our brains are symmetrical, right? So on they, they, there's a split down the middle called the corpus callosum, and on each side of the brain is kind of like s- symmetrical or mirroring halves of the lobes. And in people with erotomania, the temporal lobe, which again sits down toward the bottom but in the middle, they had asymmetry. So one side was a little bit larger than the other side in, to a significant degree when compared to people who didn't have erotomania. And the temporal lobe is part of the brain that not only deals with processing uh, auditory information, so processing what we hear, but also has a lot to do with memory. So how we encode memories and essentially store them in the brain. And there's lots of good brain bits in the temporal lobe that deal with memory, like the hippocampus. And so uh, the reason why I think that is of note is that if the part of the brain that has to deal with memory is affected in people with a disorder where essentially their memories of interactions they may or may not have with the focus of the delusional belief is 
getting messed up, right? They may have memories or encoding interactions on the internet or interactions even in real life. They're encoding them in a way that doesn't necessarily necessarily reflect reality. So I thought that was interesting that it's not just that the the, the delusion or the delusional belief is occurring for the person, but that there may be a, an issue with their memory or the way that the brain encodes memory that is feeding into or adding evidence for the person to their delusion. And reading studies like this that show some sort of evidence or some sort of sign that the brain has changed or is different in someone with a certain disorder versus someone who doesn't have it, I think that helps us to see that it's not our fault if we're experiencing a type of mental health disorder, right? Like it's not that someone worked themselves up into an erotic, erotomanic delusion, but that their brain either was predisposed or had something change in it later on that is kind of messing with the way that we remember things or encode memories. Um, and so learning about the, the biological bases for mental health disorders, I think, make them easier to treat in a cultural sense because there's a biological basis, right? It's just like a medical diagnosis, right? Like if you have an issue with your kidneys, you go in and take medicine for your kidneys. This would be an issue with your brain. So you go in and take medicine for your brain. Um, so I just wanted to include that because I think it is really important that even these more rare disorders, we do have some evidence that they're biological based and there's a, a place in which in the body in which we can target treatment. Now, there's also non-medical or non-medication based treatments for a delusional disorder, including erotomanic delusions. I'm not going to go into them because that's not what this podcast is about, but just know that there are options for treatment. And because this disorder is so rare, it's typically a case-by-case basis for how we would treat this disorder. But again, uh, anything I say in this podcast is not a substitute for treatment. So if you or someone you know is struggling with something that sounds like this or a different type of delusional disorder, please seek treatment uh, from a qualified mental health or medical professional. Now, another not-so-savory thing that needs to be pointed out about some of the literature around erotomania, particularly the origin literature from de Clarenbal, uh, is that it is quite misogynistic in its origins. Uh, in fact, the official, like, um, diagnosis of erotomania, like, back in the day in the, in the night, or 20th century, it, it had to be a woman who was in love with a man. So erotomania could only be uh, diagnosed in women who had a preoccupation with a man. So that rules out women with same-sex attraction, and that rules out men from ever being diagnosed with this disorder. It doesn't mean that <laughs> those other groups couldn't possibly experience this disorder. It just means that some of this original work was really focused on pathologizing women and heterosexual women in a, in a specific way. And I, I just wanted to point that out because if you do read through any of the sources that I'm going to post on the website or do any additional reading on this on your own, especially sources pre the like <laughs> turn of the century are going to be a little rough and are really focused on like women being fixated on a powerful man. And it's not the best uh, background to, you know, have for a diagnosis. And we do need to like take that into consideration with a grain of salt when learning about disorders like this. 
Uh, but I did want to just note it and also say that there is a lot of more modern research that definitely shows all types of people are susceptible to an erotomanic delusional disorder. Like I read one about same gender erotomania for between women. Uh, and I read one about a wom- a man with erotomania. So it's out there. Anybody, <laughs> anybody can have a delusional disorder with an erotomanic delusion. Okay. It's not, it's a, it's an open book, <laughs> open equal opportunity disorder for anyone to have. It's just that the old research really did focus specifically on women, which, which sucks. So you may be thinking to yourself, cool, we learned about a very rare disorder. I can't quite wrap my head around what it could look like. And I thought of a great example because I just finished reading the book version, even though I did watch the show. Um, The book slash show called You, which focuses on the character Joe Goldberg. I did a three-part episode on the Netflix show, uh, which is episodes 16 through 18, which you can check out on the page as well. Uh, But I actually just finished the book, which is a lot scarier (laughs) than the show could ever be. And it is quite uh, disorienting (laughs) to be in Joe's mindset. So that's just something to keep in mind if you're ever going to read it. But I thought in the book, especially, it highlighted how Joe, Joe is clearly experiencing delusions about Beck. So if you're not familiar with the story and haven't watched or listened to my episodes on it, We have our main character, Joe Goldberg, who works in a bookstore, and he becomes fixated on a woman, Guinevere Beck, who is a, like, fine arts student in New York, and they meet at his bookstore, and he immediately becomes fixated on her and essentially begins stalking her with the goal of, like, pursuing a relationship with her. And if you, you know, kind of comb through the text, if you will, of the book, and even of the show you'll realize that Joe might might fit kind of into this category. And we don't diagnose on the show, but I'm just saying he may fit into kind of this umbrella. And that one, Beck is of a higher status um, in regards to him and that she has access to higher education and she has more access to money than Joe does. And that comes up a few times in the book that he doesn't have as much money than her and he notices like that they have a difference in status and Beck also has a lot of interpersonal relationships with people with either money or social status in fact one of her closest friends is Peach Salinger who is related to the author J.D. Salinger so Beck has higher status than Joe in the context of their culture particularly in the context of like New York City so that's that's one of the things the second is that he does seemed to believe that she came on to him first, even though they were having a pretty much typical interaction between, you know, someone who's working behind the counter and uh, someone who's, like, buying something from the store. Like, they had, like, a pretty average interaction if you watch or read the book, and Joe takes that as her essentially giving permission for him to pursue her. Uh, and one thing you'll realize from... Joe's character is that he's an unreliable narrator so we don't know if what he tells the reader or the audience about Beck is true which could be another evidence of there being some sort of fixed delusional belief about this relationship because we can't trust Joe in how he's perceiving the world right which takes us back to the idea of the temporal lobe and encoding memory so 
if you're still struggling to fit kind of place what this could look like, I think that Joe Goldberg is an example of someone who's most likely experiencing a delusion of the erotomanic subtype. And additionally, he gives us a good portrait of how difficult it can be to get reality or get realistic information to penetrate through a delusional belief. Like that it's it's not just as simple as like telling someone, oh, you're that's wrong, right? It's it's very it's a very fixed belief and Joe demonstrates that. Now, another disclaimer <laughs> that Joe Goldberg is a violent character and people with delusions are not inherently violent and are not all going to be doing crimes like stalking, right? That having a delusion does not make you a person who's likely to do bad things to other people and it does not make you a violent person. It's just there's not too many examples of erotomania in media, uh, at least not current ones. There are quite a few episodes of the show Criminal Minds that deal with erotomania. If you want more uh, pop culture references, you can comb through. Basically, the first season has most of them, um, but that that show also kind of deals with, with this subtype. Now, all right, so erotomania is kind of intense, right? It's kind of like an intense version of a parasocial relationship and can be made worse or not worse but can be exacerbated by parasocial relationships and the use of social media makes there just to be more avenues for ways in which a erotomanic delusion can be strengthened right there's just more access to people of higher status because especially nowadays if you are a person who's famous or even just wealthy uh you're kind of going to be online, right? You're going to have some sort of presence either on Twitter or TikTok or, you know, whatever it is where people who are fans of that person can have access to them. And one thing that I came across when I was reading these articles was actually the role of Cameo, the the website Cameo in uh, increasing or encouraging parasocial relationships and kind of adding a financial component. So if you've never heard of Cameo, it's the service where you can essentially buy short videos from celebrities and internet personalities and they will say whatever message you ask them to say. So you'll see this a lot for like birthdays. You may pay a celebrity like Snoop Dogg to say happy birthday to your friend and then have it sent to your friend as a birthday present. So I've also seen people using it for advertisement, like buying a cameo and then asking the celebrity to like promote your whatever your brand is or podcast or thing that you want to advertise your weird mobile game like I've seen that happening too and so the thing about cameo is that the, there's quite a range of people who are on there I mean there's people like Snoop Dogg and bigger celebrities all the way down to like reality stars like um I think Jax Taylor from Vanderpump Rules and quite a selection of real housewives are on cameo so there's a wide variety of who you can have access to. And this article that I was reading, um, let's see, what was it called? Digital Ventriloquism and Celebrity Access by Drenton and Pissaris from 2021. Uh, they were essentially making the case that Cameo incentivizes, financially incentivizes celebrities to cultivate parasocial relationships. Because in a sense, you are getting your fans to give you money to have an interaction with them and although the interactions may be pretty much generic like I bet right now if we went and looked on cameo at like the last 10 videos that Snoop Dogg made 
on Cameo, like, they would all be essentially the same thing, just, like, changing the person's name (laughs) or, uh, like, some of the messages, right? But, like, essentially, you're getting the same thing out of Snoop Dogg. It's just personalized with your name on it. And so that is fueling the parasocial relationship in that the celebrity is mentioning your specific name and, you know, quote unquote, targeting the relationship to a direct person while kind of mass marketing themselves. And so there's a financial incentive for them to keep doing that because they will get paid more and you're you're going to get paid more when someone feels they have a parasocial relationship with you and they're going to keep coming back for more and more cameos. Um, but the authors of this article also made the case that Cameo kind of bridges the power differential between celebrities and fans because the fans have the power to tank a Cameo profile with poor reviews or not buy Cameos and the celebrities essentially become gig workers on the platform, right? If you're on Cameo and you're only making like 120 bucks off a video, right, you're going to be hustling to make as many videos as possible, especially if you need more money and you want to keep your fans happy and so you're kind of beholden to them because if you're not they're not going to pay you to make the videos so it becomes a vicious cycle in that the celebrity needs to foster the parasocial relationship in order to make money from the fan and the fan needs to feel that the parasocial relationship is legitimate and strong for them to continue giving money to the celebrity and you could see how if you had access to this type of well if you have access to this type of access to a celebrity how that might play a role in a fixed belief about a relationship someone may have with a celebrity. So whether it's a parasocial relationship or an erotomanic delusion, um, these types of services where you're getting exact like direct access to a celebrity and money is involved, I think it just starts to get a little bit dicey. And Cameo itself is sort of a unique product of this day and age, right? Like, on one hand, it's a technology, and Cameo wouldn't be possible in an era where we don't have personal devices on us that can make videos and access the internet, right? Like, that that had to be possible for Cameo to exist as well. But Cameo also wouldn't have existed in any other cultural time where there wasn't gig workers, or I, I guess other examples would be like DoorDash or Uber Eats or, or Uber itself, right? Where... People are doing small bits of work for a very tiny amount of pay, and us as a society have just kind of accepted that this is essentially a type of the economy, a a part of our economy now, that there are people who work these type of gig jobs, and it's now spread to celebrities. Uh, And I would imagine that if you are a celebrity with less pull, like maybe uh, certain types of reality stars that have less reputations, that their shows aren't as widely watched uh, or have less marketable skills if they are only in reality shows and not able to kind of get into other areas of like celebrity dumb, that Cameo could become kind of a trap like it is for people who uh, do other types of gig work like Uber, right? Where You have to rely on this relationship between yourself and the fans and anything that ruins that parasocial relationship could ruin your source of money. Just like somebody who drives for Uber, if anything breaks their car or ruins their reputation on the app, is going to lose out on a lot of money. And I don't mean to say this in a like, oh, we should feel so sad for people who probably have more money than us uh, that they are doing gig work. But I think it also speaks to kind of a larger 
problem with financially or, or mixing money with things, right? Like mixing money with parasocial relationships, just it, it, it like I said before, it gets just kind of messy. And I think gig work in itself is, is I, I'm probably not equipped to speak on it because I'm not an economist. I'm, you know, not well equipped in it. But just from what I know of it, my experience with it, it's not sustainable. And so applying that model to parasocial relationships is clearly not sustainable in the mix with a type of relationship that's not sustainable as well. And if you remember from episode 12, um, I talked about kind of the stages of parasocial relationships and that there's like a diversion, right? Some people, uh, they get to a point in their parasocial relating to a celebrity or, or person that they kind of fall off and they're like, okay, I'm done with this. Like it was a interesting, exciting part of my life, but now I'm moving on and not interested. Uh, and some people go the other way where they become even more kind of locked in and uh, more invested in the person they're in a parasocial relationship with. And I kind of see that diversion as being more dangerous for someone who may be predisposed to or at risk of developing a delusional disorder, right? Of like that going down that road. And I wonder how that fork in the road about parasocial relationships is influenced when money gets involved. And if you feel like, well, all I have to do is pay $50 and I get what I need from the celebrity, well, your investment in them may stay far longer than it might have in any other circumstance. So all of that to say, not an economist, (laughs) not an expert on stuff like this, but I do think psychologically it is interesting getting money involved in these parasocial relationships that are already imbalanced. And although it may rebalance them in a little bit, I I don't think it does enough. And I think it ultimately uh, makes for more of a sticky situation that could be very damaging for someone who's predisposed to this type of delusional belief or uh, experiencing difficulties with parasocial relationships. So in conclusion, parasocial relationships are tricky (laughs) already. Adding money to them can make them even trickier. And there are mental health conditions that make it more likely that you may experience a delusion that's erotomanic in content. So why am I talking about this as a prequel to next week's episode? Well, next week, I'm going to be doing an entire episode about the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard trial. So I'm going to actually give a preemptive content warning now that next week there will be a lot of discussion about domestic violence and kind of uh, uh, victim blaming, abuse, culture, like everything that goes along with domestic violence. So I'm issuing that now and I will issue it again at the beginning of next week's episode. But I'm going to be talking about the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial. And I think that parasocial relationships played a role in the, I want to say backlash. I don't, the the conversation, the discourse that was had online about this trial. Parasocial relationships, I believe, really played a role in this. Um, And one of the reasons why I think parasocial relationships were so influential in how people perceived this trial is that one of the two people involved in the trial is more famous. Johnny Depp is more famous than Amber Heard. I mean, I just, I think that's just kind of a fact. Like, more people recognize Johnny Depp's name. He's been in more movies. He's been in big franchises, more big franchises than Amber Heard has. And if I'm quite honest, 
myself, I didn't know who she was uh, until several years ago, but I've known who Johnny Depp was like most of my conscious life. So there's the imbalance there, right? If one person is more famous than the other, so more likely to pull for parasocial relationships from other people. The second is that a lot of the ways in which I saw people online talking about this trial and a lot of the kind of gotcha moments people thought they had about like Amber Heard acting in court or like I saw someone say that they think she did a line of coke while on the stand. Like a lot of that I felt seemed to come from this place of I need Johnny to know this information because uh, I want to help him. And the idea that one person on Twitter would get through to Johnny Depp and bring him evidence that would crack the case so that he could win this defamation case is the odds are impossible for that to happen. And that didn't seem to stop people from coming at it from that perspective of like trying to help Johnny Depp who, by the way, has hired a team of lawyers who, that this is their job to do this. He, he didn't need the armchair psychologists and detectives to help him in this trial. And third, the fact that this trial was televised created so many more opportunities for parasocial relationships to influence perceptions and even to develop. And the way in which people perceived either Depp or Heard's behavior I think comes through the lens of what type of parasocial relationship they had to either one. And I I say what type of because I think that some people had very contentious parasocial relationships to Amber Heard and seemed to take her behavior very, very personally in a way that you probably wouldn't take that behavior if you didn't feel connected to that person in some way. So that's why I wanted to kind of refresh about this topic before next week because I want it to be at the forefront uh, of kind of my (laughs) perception and also you guys' perception as we talk about the trial because I think for me that was one of the missing pieces of like I understood why people were invested if they felt either some type of way about uh, abuse and victims and what kind of larger message they wanted to get out of the verdict Um, but that alone like the kind of the political motivation didn't feel like enough but I think the parasocial relationship aspect fills in some of those gaps and and understanding why people took this case so personally so 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 deeply personally even though it was not even about abuse it was about defamation Um, but I'm going to go into that a lot more next episode Uh, I'm going to break down not necessarily the all of the legal stuff but some of the psychological stuff and also weave in stuff from the UK trial, which is just as relevant and had a different verdict. Um, but it might be a doozy of an episode. So <laughs> just a warning that that is coming. And But I do want to talk about it. And I think it is really, really important to talk about. Um, so I'm going to end this episode here. I hope that you were able to learn a lot about something that might be kind of rare, but is interesting to learn about. Um, as always, if you or someone you know is experiencing trouble with something like delusions or fixed beliefs and it's interfering with your well-being, please reach out to a healthcare professional. You can also check the resources tab on the website for, uh, connections to mental health services, 
And as it is Pride Month, you know, please don't forget about the Trevor Project, which is a great resource for LGBTQ plus youth, uh, especially those struggling with suicidal thoughts. So take care of yourselves. Uh, next episode is going to be a tough one and I will do another content reminder, but just a preemptive warning now. Um, but other than that, I just want to say thank you for sticking through to the end with me and I'll see you in the next episode. Bye-bye. To see the sources and resources mentioned in the episode, visit psychologicallymindedpod.com or click the link in the show notes. To contact me with any questions or comments about this topic or upcoming episodes, email me at psychmindedpod at gmail.com. Please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you and see you in the next episode. Thank you.